Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Look, you know that in a 17-year period of doing this show, I've talked about many things, especially in the area of wellness and giving all of you solutions. But here's one thing that hit my heart so hard. I felt so powerless. I felt so helpless when my friend passed away from something that we call ALS. And today, somebody that is joining me here today, co-founder, executive chairman of Dutch Brothers Company, Travis Borsman, has a powerful, empowering, not helpless, not hopeless message. Why? Because when ALS hits you so close to home and you get to watch and you get to see, you have to do something if you're Travis. You have to do something. So can a cup of Joe support ALS? You bet. And we are here full out to support everything that Travis is doing to help raise money for something you're about to hear about. Travis, great to have you. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I've done a lot of shows. I become an advocate for health and wellness over a 17 year period. I've talked about everything from Lyme disease to what's going on now. But I will tell you this, when it came to watching my friend who was diagnosed with ALS, I had never felt such a sense of helplessness. For you, you've taken a similar journey more, more so than me. You know, for you, this is about Dane, isn't it? Well, uh, there's no doubt about it, but it's, uh, you know, in, in my experience, um, you know, there's no bigger heart-wrenching, difficult, brutal thing that I've, I've been through um, than, than what I had to go through with my brother. Yeah. Uh, he was not only my brother, he was my business partner. Um, he was my, my best friend and my mentor. Uh, and so, you know, seeing Dane go through something like that in those early stages, we, we thought, I, I remember thinking, Hold, you know, I'm, we're going to beat this thing. We're going to yeah. fight it. We're going to beat it, you know, and, and you, you quickly realize over time that you have no control. Mm-hmm. And when you, you know, for, for where I was in my life, um, that, that was tough because I, I guess to some extent, you know, I, I'd like to think that, you know, we can, we can persevere, we can get through, we can, 
find a way, you know, I'm the eternal optimist. So when, when you get dealt this hand, um, you do feel helpless. And, and there is, uh, that, that feeling is, is just a, a terrible, horrible feeling. Yeah. And you're right. You shared so much, Travis. You shared so much. I mean, you know, being co-founder, executive chairman of Dutch Bros Company, a coffee, it's nation, privately held drive through comp- coffee company. It, it's the largest. And this is an accomplishment, an achievement. And when you build something, it's, you don't expect, you don't expect something like this just to come out of nowhere. These are my words, to come out of nowhere. But the question then is, when it does come out of nowhere, what do you do after you experience this and watch the pain? And for many people, they may not know what ALS is, and I want to give them some information about it. But you took action. Tell us about the action today. Well, 15 years ago, uh, we decided to, to dedicate one day a year uh, in the month of May that is, it's, you know, ALS month. Yep. So, you know, one day a year, we call it drink one for Dane. And proceeds go to the MDA to hopefully find cause. And all of our shops in all 11 states contribute on this day. And, and all of our employees, all of our broistas, all of our great customers. Everybody kind of comes together. People come from, you know, out of the woodwork to really just support this day alone. And, and, and people have come to look forward to it. Yeah. Uh, especially those who have had an experience like, like we have, you know what I mean? And when you, when you go through something like this, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that, that kind of is, it's a scar that is, on your heart that you never, you never forget about. And so, um, the impact that we've, we've made is, is significant. We've, we've been raising money every year on drink one for Dane. Um, and our, our goal is to eclipse $10 million cumulatively, uh, with, with drink one for Dane. Uh, we'll, we're hoping to hit 1.6 million on May 14th alone wow. uh, that'll put us over the $10 million mark. So, um, you know, money is, is a, is a wonderful tool. It's a great resource and that's all it really is. I mean, you know, it's, it, you can't really do anything with money. It's, it's, it's one of those things that, um, that, you know, you can't take with you when you pass and, and we're, we're like vapor here. We're all gonna, we're all terminal or, or maybe we're eternal, but, but one day, um, yeah. you know, our number will be called and we don't get to pick how or when. And, and if you get this number called in this how, uh, to me, it's, it's one of the most brutal ways to go. Hmm. It really is. And we're going to talk about that. I want to make sure everybody knows. Look, go to Dutch. D-U-T-C-H Brothers, but it's abbreviated bros. I love that. B-R-O-S dot com. Dutch B-R-O-S is in Sam dot com. And for those of you listening, I want to just be really clear about availability for the state. When you go there, you're going to see the map of locations. And when you look here, for those of you sitting here in Western Washington and Eastern Washington that are listening to the show, there is a location that you can put on your calendar 
for this day and you pull out your calendar now and you go there and you take a look at this and you'll be able to see throughout the country, but especially through the state of Washington, take a look. There are places for you to go. There are coffee shops for you to go. Dutch Brothers coffee shops all over. There's one that we're planning to go to right up the road from us in Everett. So this is really what we're talking about. It's a call to action. Um, I, I need to take a minute with you, Travis, to talk about ALS because this is what many people don't know. Let's talk about ALS. Let's talk about how many how many people get it. You know, what are the chances? I, you know, out of all of the illnesses I've studied in 17 years, this is the one that we've done the most talking about and the least amount of solution in all 17 years. Tell us about what ALS is for people that don't know. Well, so, you know, with Dane, um, it started with a speech. Uh, it starts, you start to have slur speech. It leads to difficulty swallowing over time. You have difficulty with your breathing diaphragm. And then, you know, you lose your ability to walk. You lose all your muscle uh, performance. So um, for those of you uh, in Eastern Washington, you probably know Steve Gleason, the former pro football player for the New Orleans Saints. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe he was a Washington State Coug. Uh, he's, he's like a living legend, a hero uh, to me. Um, and he is well into the disease he only is able to communicate with his eyes yeah so he he literally uh has lost the use of everything but his eyes and and maybe a a, a smile but um he's he's brilliant in his space uh there's there's people that that struggle with this disease uh Every year, you know, there's turnover. The average life expectancy once diagnosed is about two to five years. Yep. I think Steve is somewhere out there like eight to 10 years uh, since diagnosis and, and, and still rocking. There's a, a documentary, if you have the opportunity to watch it, that's incredible uh, with him and a whole team hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. Or, and and uh, I, I just, uh, or, or maybe it was Machu Picchu, one yeah. of those two. but. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the thing that, that is, is really tragic is every year about 30,000 people have it at any given time. Right. And, and so because there's not a lot of, uh, there's no drugs or there's no, there's no money to be, to be used for research. It has to come from organizations like us, crusades and, and organizations like, like Steve has put together, Steve Leeson. Uh, he has Gleason Fest for for Music Bus, a uh, big festival out there in Spokane every year. Um, it takes extraordinary effort. Pete Freight's the Ice Bucket Challenge. Uh, that was one that, that really put it on the map. The more that we can share and, and give people awareness, that's that gives us the ability to, to really give people the help and, and donate and, and try to to put some money behind this thing for the people who have committed their lives to research, you know, because there's this thing is it's gone on way too long. Yeah. Um, it's something that, that I do believe we're closer to finding a cure for our cause every single day that goes by. I think we're making significant progress. 
And, you know, it's because, Travis, you know, what you're doing here and, you know, you're coming out and you're making people aware. And, you know, this is important, you know, because because of what we just talked about with ALS, because of the short life expectancy, because there really is, and I, I will say this, there really is no drug to cure it. You know, there's less publicity about it you know, and less funding for it. And if it's not for you to do something like drink one for Dane, Friday, May 14th, right? You know, I want everybody to, to really know, please, Friday, May 14th, go get a cup, go get a drink, drink one for Dane. Because without these kinds of campaigns, you know, the people that suffer from ALS, um, they really don't have the support. And it doesn't matter what race or ethical uh, ethnic background you are. It doesn't matter what age you are. That's the trick. It doesn't matter any of that, right? There, 90% of ALS cases are sporadic. And so this is a way to get the word out. This is what Travis is doing. Um, tell us, uh, it, so look, I'm saying to people, go get a drink for Dane. How do people go about that, Travis? <laughs> Well, you know, our company, uh, we've got over 450 locations in 11 states. So, you know, we're growing. We're, yeah. we're here to make a difference. So our mission is we're a fun-loving, mind-blowing company making a massive difference one cup at a time. This day is all about that. Yeah. I mean, it's on. It, we're on fire on this day. Our, our people are, are out of their minds, stoked. Um, we're building beverages faster than people can blink their eyes. I mean, it's, it's a day to, to really make impact, make a difference. And, and if you go to any one of our shops, that's one way, uh, proceeds from every cup, go to cause research to find cause cure. And then if you don't have a shop near you, or you just simply want to do it easily, you can go to dutchbros.com and donate. So it's, it's a big deal. Um, the goal again is 1.6 million on May 14th. And if we hit that goal, when we hit that goal, we'll eclipse $10 million over a 15 year period of time. And, you know, if somebody would have told me that when we started this thing out, I would have just been blown away. Yeah. I, I, but, but the reality is what, what is going to be the blow away, what is going to be the difference maker is, finding cause, finding cure, and, and that will really uh, be a big difference maker in people's lives. I can't, I can't begin to tell you how horrific, how challenging, how difficult, how heart-wrenching it is for the people, the families, the friends that have someone go through this. It's, and, and it, it's, it tears your heart out. It, it, you know, it's one of these things that I believe we'll get through, but it's going to take extraordinary effort from, from all of us. Mm. Travis, thank you for today. Um, what's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? Well, um, I guess what I'd say is we never arrive until we depart. So no matter where you're at, no matter who you are, no matter what your struggle is, the best thing that we can do is continue to grow, continue to learn, continue to apply those lessons in our lives to, to be a better version of ourselves, to make an impact and love on each other. At the end of the day, man, don't lose sight of love. 
Mm-hmm. Dutch Bros is in the relationship business and the product is love. You know, so at the end of it all, man, that's all that really matters. Um, and we're, you don't get to pick winner how you go. So, you know, make the impact you can make, seize the opportunity. It's your life, write your book, make it happen. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Travis. And for those of you out there, DutchBros.com, we're all over it. Thank you so much, Travis. Thank you so much. And I want to just mention for everybody here, come on. This is all about Drink One for Dane. It's on May 14th, and the company Dutch Bros will donate a portion of the proceeds. You know, more than 400 shops, shops across the nation. Please get involved. Please help us out. Please, let's get a cure for ALS. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Imagine what it would be like to turn your pain into purpose. Tune in to Transformation with Martine every second and fourth Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Martine and her guests are here shining their lights today through empowering stories of hardship and transformation. Begin to see your life in a new light. Visit MartineEmmons.com and tune in every second and fourth Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific to Transformation with Martine. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. Actually, fantastic news segment. What happens when you're somebody like me and over a 17 year period, you have interviewed some of the most interesting people, but never really thought about the impact they truly make on the world? You know, what happens if we were to celebrate these female writers, these trailblazers who change the world? What if we took a look at who they are and and what their impacts have been? Many of you have used quotes from them. Many of you know who they are and what they've done. You may not always remember their names, but you know that there has been a game-changing impact. Today, joining me, Lauren Marino, longtime book editor and publisher and the author of Bookish Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves Into History is joining me here today because celebrating and honoring the dignity of these women right now is one of the most important things we can do. Lauren, it's great to have you. What an epic effort. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. You know, I don't know if we take the time, I'm thinking about this for myself, if we truly take the time to really honor the women that have literally shifted the way we see the world. Can you tell me from your perspective, what touched your heart? What, I mean, in order for you to do something like this, something had to literally blow open your heart. Right. Well, I think, you know, I'm a lifelong reader. Um, I loved books as a child. I've always been a writer, and I've devoted my whole career to publishing books. But as a woman, as a mother, um, and, and a writer, I just feel that women writers 
have not been honored enough or celebrated enough. And that's what I always read growing up. It's what my daughter reads. The, you know, the, the books that female writers have written have shaped me. They've shaped who I am. They've made me who I am. Uh, you know, characters like Jane Eyre, who shows tremendous courage. And I think as a reader, being able to see yourself relate to the experiences and the inner life of the characters that you're reading about is really important. Um, the specific impetus for this, for writing Bookish Broads, was that I was reading an article about the, from the American Library Association, and they were saying, we're so proud that we have this list of the top 100 most circulated books in the libraries from all around the world. And I said, oh, well, this will be interesting. What are the, you know, these are the books that the libraries send around the most, um, you know, that people check out and read the most. And I looked at that list and I saw that only, I, I actually sat and counted, 14 out of the top 100 were by women. And I said, how can that be that it's 14 out of 100? Wow. And yet I know as a book publisher that 70 to 80% of books are bought by women. I know my mother was a huge reader growing up. I know that I'm a big reader. I know that women are the ones that start the book club. Yep. Um, I know how, how successful women writers are, books on the bestseller list. Um, in fiction, are, are so many are by women. So, is that an algorithm problem? Like, like it, what? You know, these are books. So, so anyway, I just started digging deep into. Um, I wanted to know why this was, but I also, more importantly, wanted to just celebrate them, the obstacles that they had to overcome, um, which were many throughout history, yeah. because um, they did not. Women did not have legal rights. Women did not have access to books or education, really, until the 20th century. Um, and yet, they and they were ostracized if they were writers. They had to publish under male pseudonyms or have to publish um, anonymously. And yet, I know that these women shaped me and shaped millions of other girls and women growing up. So that just put a fire in my heart. I said, I want to go, I want to find out what these women were about, and I want to share that with the world, and I want to make it accessible and fun, and I want to highlight some of the best books that they wrote so that hopefully this is kind of like Bookish Broads is like a little guidebook of female writers through history and you can read about the story behind the storyteller and pick the ones that you want to know more about and then you know look at the further reading i provide or you know i just i just want to i want to celebrate yeah. them and i want to make people turn to them yeah so and, that was really fine and you know i think and by the way you've done that because what we what we're really seeing now is I believe this is me now speaking a hunger. Let me just call it a hunger, a hunger. I can't tell you how yeah. many of my friends and and multi generations now are if they're not reading a book, they are listening to a book. And I honestly, 
uh, I've been doing this 17 years and in a 17 year period, I have never been in a time where more women, I can't speak for the men, more women that I know of are reading books, less television in their car, they are doing that. But what you're doing is so special. And let me tell you why. Um, there are many of us that have broken through a profession or a field and we know what that's like. I cannot imagine what this was like for these women. I can't imagine what it was like right. for the women that sat in, in a monastery and wrote things and never got a single bit of credit. What are some of the firsts that you discovered, meaning the first dot, 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 the first dot, dot, dot? Right. Well, I think, you know, the, one of the things that really surprised me in researching this was that some of the first female writers in the Western world were the nuns. And there were a lot of reasons for this. One was that most women, most girls, were put into forced arranged marriages mm. By the time they were 12 years old, yeah. as soon as they were a child bearing age, they were married off. And in some cases, I mean, if they didn't jump, you know, we know how dangerous childbirth yeah. was and can still be. Yep. Um, if they didn't, they would they would have one child after another. Yep. Um, in, in some cases, you could have 20 children, 20 children, if you didn't die in childbirth. Um, and, and so you really, you, you never learned to read, you didn't learn to write. The way to, if you had, um, if you had a fire in your heart to change the world, um, or to, or to learn to read or write, or to express yourself the way that you did, that was joining the convent. So the first female writers were nuns, and the and, and it was not legal, women were not allowed to write or to read. But the nuns would all sit there in the convent together and they taught each other how to read and write and they used divine inspiration and and showing their praise for God as their that was how, that was how they expressed themselves. That's how they yeah. their passion for God is what they wrote about and therefore it was acceptable. Mm. Um, so I just found that yeah. utterly fascinating. Yeah. But also, you know, I studied English literature in school and I learned um, that the first novel was written by Samuel Richardson in the 18th century. Yeah, the first novel was written in 11th century Japan by Lady Murasaki Shikibu. Wow. The Tale of Genji, which is still a beloved book. Um, she wrote it in Japanese, and it was really, I mean, it's a 1,300-page book. Um, she was in the in the Empress's court, and it was sort of all of the drama going on at court, and it was a sort of soap opera that would rival yeah. The Crown or Bridgerton. Um, you know, and, but she's credited in Japan for that. She's well-known there, but she's not that well-known in the United States, so I thought that was fascinating. Um you know, Lauren, let me ask you. The list goes on and on. Yeah, let me ask you yeah. this question because, well, first off, you're absolutely right. My stepmom had my first, uh, my, my stepmom had my sister Joyce at 12 and Doris at 13. So that's, that's still going on down the South. So I totally get what you're talking about there. Right. But let's talk about this. We're running right. into a strange situation in, in media right now. And I'm an independent network. I own a network independent, but we distribute. And we're finding right now um, that some of the interviews we distribute are being censored. 
And I, I, I never thought, I thought, well, these women went through the censorship. I'm never going to go through the censorship thing. Uh, and I'm not talking about talking wow. about extreme things, right? I'm not, I'm not even talking about extreme wow. things. I'm talking about a host mentioning or saying something that they don't think is medically proven. And I've never experienced that. So my question to you is, what the heck did these people go through? Did we ever really get what they really wanted to write? I think a lot of them did. I mean, they were ostracized. And um, some women writers still are. You know, growing up, I read Judy Bloom, and so did millions and millions of other girls. And her books were pretty innocent, but they were meant for teenage girls because she wanted to write books that answered the questions that she had when she was growing up that no one had told her. And I read Judy Bloom, and that got me yeah. through. That's what I, where I learned what I was going through. When you're going through puberty and adolescence, <laughs> it's such a confusing time. You know, it's, it's confusing physically. It's confusing emotionally. And just to read those books made me say, oh, okay, I get it. This is what it, this is what happens, and this is, like, this happens to everyone, and I'm not weird, and I'm okay, and, you know, but Judy Bloom is censored. Yeah. Judy Bloom is one of the most censored writers, and yet, I don't know how I, or so many millions of other readers, would, you know, books are there to help, not just to entertain, but to educate, and to provide knowledge, and to provide different perspectives and points of view. Um, they're there to create understanding, and um, that's why I think reading is so crucial, and having voice, all kinds of different voices heard, and women's voices were not heard for centuries. Yeah. And Let a lot of them were lost to history. That's what, yeah. I got to really honor what you're doing. Um, if you, if, you, you, what you're doing you. and what you've done I hope you do, I hope you, okay, I hope you keep doing it, because the book that you've written is amazing. It is amazing. And it is such an important body of work right now. Uh, and I want to make sure people know, how do they get the book, Lauren? And how do they find out more about you? Let's sure. make sure we do that. Sure, thank you. Um, you can go to my website, which is Lauren Marino Books. Dot com. There's an excerpt of the book there, and there are also links to buy it, but you can buy it on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, at Books A Million, uh, at bookshop.org. You can find it online. You can find it in your mm. independent bookseller. You can ask for it if they don't have it. Um, but all, all those links are on mm -hmm. laurenmarinobooks.com. Now, I know you've got to run... Your research was amazing on this. I'm a researcher at heart, but n nothing near as interesting as what you did. Um, but you did the research on this. And I would love for you to spend a few minutes letting us know what some of the little known facts are. For example, you know, many of us know that women used to use pseudonyms, but very few of us know that contemporary women use pseudonyms. Everybody from uh, the, the most popular books out there, right, to writing books about vampires or maybe writing a book about Anne Rice, for example. Her first set of books wasn't under Anne Rice's name. Uh, I, 
talk that's about right. Uh, right. shocking. It's shocking to me that we're living in this age. Yes. But that's what you found out, right? Yes, yes. And, it, you know, for, for most of history, women were not allowed to publish. Wow. Uh, so often they would have to, they would publish, they would have to have their brothers go to the publisher and get the book published on their behalf, but they could not put their name on it, or they had to use a male name. So some of our most popular writers, like Jane Austen, mm-hmm. um, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, George Sand, um, you know, they either wrote under a male pseudonym or anonymously, but even as recent as, um, you know, the Harry Potter books J.K. are written by J.K. Rowling, but her J.K. Rowling's first name is Joanne. It's Joanne Rowling. But because she was writing of what, what the publisher thought were uh, a book about a boy wizard, they thought it was a book for boys, that they wouldn't read it if they thought it was written by a woman. So they had her use a pseudonym. And of course, they became the most popular books of their time. She revived the book, the children's book publishing industry with those books, and they appealed to boys and girls equally. They also appeal to the parents and adults. Um, But also, my my daughter um, in seventh grade last year read The Outsiders Uh by S.E. Hinton, which I I remember reading when I was in school. And, you know, it's a great, it's a fun movie. You know, it's it's about Tulsa, Oklahoma in the the 1960s (laughs) and the boys that grow up on the wrong side of the tracks. Um, it started the the movie started the careers of Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze and a right. lot of other great actors, but I did not know until I was researching this book that S. E. Hinton was Susan Hinton. Wow! And that Susan Hinton wrote that when she was seventeen years old. She's from Tulsa, um, so so that was fascinating to me. Um, Harper Lee. Now you know we know she's a woman, but she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Her first name is Nell. N-E-L-L-E, Nellie. She uh, took the first, knocked the first name off of it and said Harper Lee, published under Harper Lee, because she said, well, that's sort of, you know, it could go either way. It could be written by a man or a woman. And she didn't want to hurt her ability to get reviewed or to sell books. Um, she, you know, she didn't want to deal with the criticism of being a woman writing that book, so she wrote it under Harperly. So it still happens in some ways, um, and it's surprising that it still happens. But yeah. there are there are still some prejudices um, in the culture, and you know, so women have found ways around them because they they feel so passionate about expressing themselves and getting their their words on the page and getting their ideas out there and sharing them. So it's they're really mm. trailblazing and very, very brave because the consequences to expose yourself like that, they're real. Yeah. They're real, especially in the, in the era of cancel culture and everything else. So, well, you... Um, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to celebrate. I'm happy you're celebrating, but honestly, when I took a look at this, it's way more than a celebration. It is really almost a documentary about honoring these women and what they've done. And I do have one last author for you to comment on. As a kid, as a kid, I grew up and I loved all of the horror, anything with horror books and anything like that. But here's my last question, because I know you got to run. They're going to kick me off here in no time. It took me a decade to believe. Now, I'm going to admit this on air, but I was young. 
who wrote Frankenstein? Frankenstein. Exactly. Out of all of the books, right? Mary Shelley. You would never have thought that, would you? No. You, and she was only 17 when she wrote it, which is also incredible. Really? And you know, we don't have time to get into all of the stuff about Frankenstein, but you know, people think of it as just a horror book, but it's really much, much more than that. Yeah. It's, you know, Mary Shelley had eight children and before Percy Shelley, her husband died, and only one of them survived. So she had a lot of loss in her life. So it's Frankenstein's really a book about creation and destruction and her own grief mm. over the loss of, um, of, of, her, of her children. Yeah. So it's, a, it's like you have to read that book on many levels. Yep. Um, and, it, and it's astonishing that a young woman wrote that. No one believed it at the time. They all thought that Percy Shelley wrote it, that yeah. her husband wrote it. Yeah, yeah um, they, they still don't believe her, it. Yeah, Yeah, people still don't believe it. (laughs) Don't. Um, Lauren, I got to tell you, I know you've got to run. I know I'm probably in trouble for stretching this interview. But honestly, I could talk to you for a a, a full hour interview on this. There's so much more to talk about. Um, First of all, let me honor you as a woman for honoring these women. It is something that as women, we don't do that often. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I am the, I'm planning to do that for women in my field. You know, they, these are people that do radio and podcast and, you know, women don't own networks, but we do. And so you have done right. something extraordinary. Right. Um, please tell folks how to get the book. And I've got to know your personal message. Well, yes, laurenmarinobooks.com. You can buy it on Focus Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves in a History, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, Books A Million, wherever, wherever books are sold, you should be able to find it. And I just, I think this is a great Mother's Day gift. If your mom loves to read, I think it's a great graduation gift. Um, I think it's for women of all ages. And if you have a bookworm in your life, a female bookworm, she will love this book. And she'll learn something. I also think for aspiring writers, um, you, when you see what these women went through to get their word out there, if you are an aspiring writer, these women will inspire you. Lauren, I got to thank you for this. And more importantly, thank you for making this illustrated. What's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with? Oh, I just, I think that, you know, words are powerful Mm -hmm. and reading is, you know, creates knowledge and understanding. And I just, I, you know, I've devoted my life to books. I just, I love, I want people to read. Mm -hmm. I want people to come together through a love of literature. Uh, I hope you'll come back. Um, on my show. Uh, There's so much more to talk about. Uh, And thank you for all that you're doing, Lauren. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Hey, everybody, please get this book. Please share this with your family. Please share this with your daughters. Once you get into the book and you open it up, you're going to hear things we didn't talk about today. Thank you all. Parenting isn't about perfection. I think we all know that. 
parenting is about being present and honest, having compassion for your child and for yourself, communicating consciously and loving unconditionally. Tune into the Awakened Parent Project with Susan Dolce every first and third Tuesday at noon Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to be an empowered parent through the techniques of the conscious parenting community. To learn more about Susan, visit SusanDolce.com. Can a cup of Joe support ALS? May 14th. If you go to any one of our shops, proceeds from every cup go to research to find cause. If you don't have a shop near you, you can go to DutchBros.com and donate. The goal is 1.6 million. All of our releases, all of our great customers. It's going to take extraordinary effort from all of us. Let's talk about ALS. Go to DutchBrosinSam.com. TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our good news segment. Let me just say this and just take this in. Novel cell therapy now approved for a community in need of new options. Think about that. You're going to find out what's underneath all that. But novel cell therapy now approved for a community in need of new options. You ever been in a situation with your health and wellness where there were not new options? Today, joining me here, we're going to understand this really deeply about this cell, cell therapy that offers a new potential option. And you're probably saying, for what? But I am going to have the experts talk about that. Dr. Nina Shaw is joining me here today, uh, professor in the Department of Medicine, UCSF Health, and treats patients at the Hematology and Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinic. That is a big job. That is someone that knows a lot about what we're about to talk about. And then I want to introduce you to Cecilia Romanski, diagnosed with something that, hmm, did not have a lot of new options. You're going to hear about that. Dr. Shaw, Cecilia, welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's, um, let's reveal the mystery. Let's reveal the illness we're talking about, the mystery. And the reason I like to lead with need of new options is so often, you know, we are faced with the form of cancer and we do not have new options. And that's, this is a good news segment. So it's all about new options. Dr. Shaw, fill in the blanks about what exactly are we talking about and why, is our, why are new options critical right now? Yeah, well, so first of all, thanks so much for having me and, and, and being able to talk about this exciting uh, new option. Um, and I want to just give a little background that multiple myeloma, as you know, is is a cancer mm-hmm. of plasma cells, which are immune cells um, in, in a patient's yes. body. And these cells grow and, and take up resources of other cells. And that's generally what cancer is. Um, and, and it can present with fatigue and bone pain, uh, tends to be um, in patients that are a little bit older. Um, but the most important characteristic about this disease is that it is incurable, which means that patients are constantly going from treatment to treatment to treatment. They're always on therapy. Um, and every time a treatment is done, we, we we hope that it lasts for a long time, but but sometimes it, it doesn't last and people have another treatment. And so as time goes on, it becomes this marathon of a disease um, and we're always looking for the next option. So that's why we're so excited to have something new, this, this CAR T-cell therapy, a BECMA um, and I just want to point out, I'm, I'm not being uh, paid by Bristol Myers Squibb for, for this inter- interview at all. I just, I'm really wanting to raise awareness about multiple myeloma and talk about this new yeah. exciting therapy, Abecma. 
Yeah, and we're going to have Cecilia on in a minute because I have a friend that is going through exactly what you just described, you mm-hmm. know, treatments on a regular basis, you know, and yeah. for her, it really is a step in a world of unknown. Am I going to be okay tomorrow? So I really want to point that out because need of new options and talking about new options is literally miraculously a breakthrough. Well, we're going to get back to that, Dr. Shaw. Um, Cecilia, thank you for joining me here today. Welcome. Oh, thank you. So this is up close and personal for you. And I want you to share your story because this is literally personal to you. Right, right. Yeah, I was um, 40 years old when I was diagnosed in 2005. Um, Had young kids, they were 9 and 11. And my husband, we just had this awesome little family. We still do. But um, yeah, then um, multiple myeloma came on board and kind of a shock. I'd been healthy my whole life. So um, you get into treatment and I had a, a stem cell transplant, but like Dr. Shaw was saying, it's it's just a marathon of treatment. Like something will, you'll be in treatment for a year, nine months maybe, and then it starts to wear off and the cancer comes roaring back. So you're always thinking like, what's the next thing ahead? What's the next thing? And thankfully I got to be at UCSF, which is an amazing um care facility. And I cannot say more about that. The team over there, they're amazing. Um, but it's just that always, and then you have like neighbor people, friends, just trying to help you or overhelp you <laughs> um, with information because, <laughs> you know, you're always trying to think like what's next and that can be overwhelming and, you know, trying to dial down the noise and help them help you by telling them to maybe back off sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, just really listening to your doctors and, and going to resources that are um, pure and that your doctor directs you to. Um, it, it was really helpful for me because you're just trying to live your life. You're just trying to do treatment, fit it into your life and then just get back to going to the grocery store. So um, yeah. And then this, a back, it's a one-time infusion. Yeah. It, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. One time infusion. Did you say that? Oh gosh. Yeah. No, it, it still boggles okay. my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Me well, well, that, yeah. And the reason that that's important to say is because people are listening to this and we know other people that are going to treatment. That's right. like a miracle. You know, one mm-hmm. of the things, Cecilia, is fast forward to where we are today, right? Mm-hmm. You're somebody that is uh, alive and thriving and right. walking and hiking, right? right? right. You have a yeah. new perspective on life. How valuable mm-hmm. is that to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When I was first diagnosed, the prognosis was three to five years. And um, I don't know if it's a mom thing, but wow. just like, okay, so that's what I have. Like, okay, what do I need to get done? So my kids got hyper um, educated on everything they needed to know when I wasn't going to be here supposedly, but <laughs> I'm still here. They're done with college. So I've yeah. kind of run out of advice and now I just get to enjoy them. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, it just really changes your mindset. And, and again, you don't want to let it overcome your life, but at the same time, it's hard not to, it becomes your full-time job to take care of this. So you could participate in life and um, be fully present when you're not necessarily doing treatment. So yeah, this abecma treatment was for our whole family. It's, it's the biggest gift. Wow. Thank you, Cecilia. Dr. Shaw, yeah, the University of California, San Francisco, that's what the abbreviation stands for, everybody. UCSF. 
I want to I want to like peel the onion back with you if we could, because sure. when I said, you know, in need, we needed to have something new. What are the unmet needs that persist in this disease for people to know? Because if you think about Cecilia and, you know, that's why I had her say it again, one IV treatment, that is not generally the pathway people go with this disease. Can you really peel back the onion for us today? Yeah, I, th- I think this is a really important uh, point that you're making here. We've got the first time that we have, uh, first of all, a T-cell therapy for myeloma. This has never been done before. It's an, right. engineered t- it's an engineered T-cell. So it's using all these cool technology to make this T-cell specific for the myeloma. So we're, we're taking advantage of, of what we're given, the immune system, and making it better uh, to try to kill the myeloma. So that in itself is a, is a huge thing. Um, and, and the unmet need is that patients usually do get cycles and cycles of chemotherapy and each cycle is weeks and weeks right so they come to their infusions and do that but this is a one-time treatment and the fact that it's combining the novelty of immunotherapy with the novelty of just being one time i mean this is something that is definitely a synergistic um uh, just a, a great resource to have for our patients and that's why i'm saying that it truly is addressing this unmet need of one trying to treat cancer and two true two trying to make things better for patients. You know, what have you learned? This is new, so I'm not going to put you on the spot as much as I normally would. It's a new treatment. Um, But there's a cycle that goes on here uh, for Cecilia, Dr. Shaw, where where people seem to be doing better, and then maybe they, they get to a state where there is this, I don't know, maybe relapse that that happens. I mean, it's almost like a roller coaster ride prior to this innovation. And so I want to talk about that with both of you. But more importantly, how do people, Dr. Shaw, how do they find out about this? Yeah, um, you may you've you've captured it perfectly. It is a roller coaster marathon, like a long you know. Thing. There are good times and bad times. Um, that yep. they can people can find out a lot more about this therapy at abecma.com. That's a b e c m a dot com, and that will actually tell you a lot more details about the logistics, etc. What this therapy is, in addition, give a lot of resources about multiple myeloma for patients and family members. Um, and, and I want to point out that you know this is a new therapy. It has its side effects. And I, I want to make sure that I say that there are some serious yep. side effects associated with it, which can include something called cytokine release syndrome or CRS, um, and also neurotoxicity. Uh, again, uh, side effects, but and things that you should tell your doctor about if you experience them. But overall, just something so new uh, that's now a new option for patients that we just didn't have before up until a few weeks ago. Well, let's talk about side effects for a minute, Cecilia and Dr. Shaw, because chemotherapy, I mean, chemotherapy has its own bundle of things, right? And I'm glad you pointed it out because people can make their decisions on this. That's what I love about doing these shows. It's like you get to do your research, you get to do your homework, you know there are side effects, but then you know what you've gone through in your life and you make a decision, right? Right. Um, Cecilia, for you. You know the side effects, you made the decision. How's that feel? Um, great. <laughs> um, yeah, we knew the side effects. <laughs> well, gosh, you know, being in the, in this, at this job for 13 years, um, you know, prior to the infusion, um, gosh, every side effect 
that I would hear with any chemo was like, well, it could kill you. So, you know, I'm going to kill me or I'm going to live or I'm going to die soon if I don't do treatment. So it was very exciting. Like, um, I don't mean to belittle it, but the, the, the cytox, you know, the, um, it was the treatment that I was going to maybe not during the treatment know who people were. Like my family was super excited about that. They were going to tease me, videotape me. I think they thought my wisdom teeth were getting pulled. Um, and none of that happened for me. So <laughs> I, hugely disappointed my family. Um, cause again, yeah, I've had everything and you're just so nauseous, you know, other treatments that you're just so nauseous and it's exhausting and you don't want to be exhausted for your family. Like if anything, that's the only reason why you do any of this is so you could wake up and give them a smile on their face. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, it gets tiring, but just that one time infusion is vastly, uh, for me, it was, is, just changed our lives. Um, and so going into it, yeah, it did change my life, but, but looking at, you know, the possibility of doing it, I I wasn't scared because I feel like we'd walked through so much fire before. So we were just so excited with anticipation and seeing the excitement in your doctor's eyes, like watching that, like uh, this whole thing has been so exciting for me to watch them for knowing them for so long that they're, this is their passion. Like they get to, you know, help people with this disease and, um, so it's just been miraculous to watch this whole process and just see how helpful this is for people. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. I know we've got a minute or two left and, you know, there's so much more we could talk about, but I really want to get to what excites you most where you're sitting right now and what you see in the future, because yeah, I agree with, I agree with Cecilia, the look in your eye, but the look in your eye is more than just a look in your eye. It's a look into the future. Tell us about that. Yeah, we are so excited that there are just that there's a new class of therapies for this disease because we didn't have that a few years ago. And what this opens up is the possibility that these treatments can, of course, be available for relapsed refractory myeloma. And we hope in the future, maybe patients don't have to wait to the end, you know, after many, many lines to get this treatment. We also hope that by participating in clinical trials, people will, uh, our myeloma patients, our community, uh, we'll also learn more about the disease and how to best treat it. Um, This is the first step, and I hope a long series of steps for improving our patients' experience um, and and increasing the number of years where they will be able to wake up with a smile on their face, as Cecilia mentioned. I love it. Look, one last time, I would love for you to tell us how to find out more about this and what's your personal message. What do you want to leave us us with today? Uh, For me? Yes. Um, yeah. So please, if you're interested in knowing more about this therapy, uh, please go to abecma.com. That's A-B-E-C-M-A, again, for resources about this therapy and the disease in general. Um, and most importantly, to educate yourself, your family members, your caregiving team. Knowledge is power. And that's the most important thing you can have with you on this really long marathon journey. Thank you. Cecilia, what do you want to leave us with today? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um yeah, just always have hope, like always trust in your doctors if you um, have hope because they are working so hard with this disease to come up with just amazing options for us. So um, just be hopeful. Hang in there. Yeah, I love it. That, that I'm going to use for the rest of the week. Thank you. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 